Lord, we love your house. We love your word. I love your people. <laughs> it's just a joy to gather with these incredible people from every walk of life, every tribe and tongue. God, thank you in all seriousness. Even this weekend, not only as we gather as the church, but then tomorrow as we honor Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I thank you that, you know, the things that he was believing for are as needed today as they were in any day. And I believe that the church of Jesus Christ would rise up and be part of the solution. God, I thank you that what you died for on the cross, what we remembered in communion, your, your body and your blood is powerful to change the course of nations. And we declare it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of my message this morning is The Way. We've been teaching a series across the church. We're going to be teaching it all month called Follow Jesus. It's actually a part of our mission statement as a church. Our vision is that we would know Christ and make him known. And our mission, if you like, how we believe to achieve that is that we would follow Jesus, thrive in community, and make a difference. And so, you know, as we talk about what it is to follow Jesus this morning, I, I want to really hone in on this idea of the way. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 14, John 14, verse 1, Jesus, it says in, in the NIV, the, the title here is Jesus comforts his disciples. By the way, the context is Jesus is telling them it's time to go. He's going to return to the Father and of course, they've become very attached to Jesus, you know, first as a rabbi, a teacher, now re recognizing him as son of God, son of man. And so Jesus is, is comforting them. And Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And take you to be with me, so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? It's a fair question. He's taking it very literally. And then Jesus responds to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. See, Thomas says, how are we going to know the way? And what's Jesus' response? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, then you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Why? Because they knew Jesus and seen him. Sometimes I think we're like Thomas. We're looking for the way. What's the way? What's the way? What's the way I should go in life? We're looking for the way when in Jesus we have the way. Because the way is him. Jesus is the way. I think Thomas is imagining here he's going to get some set of instructions, some set of directions. He doesn't understand. Like, so Jesus, where are you going? And if, if I don't know exactly where you're going, how am I going to know how to find you? No, no, Jesus himself is the way. He has all the direction that he needs in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the way is a person. The truth is a person. Life is a person, abundant, eternal, God-given, true, and living life. Life is a person, and the person is Jesus Christ. You know, just weeks ago, we celebrated Christmas. And amongst all the festivities, we sang all those beautiful carols. And one of the names we often sing at Christmas time is Emmanuel, a name given to Jesus 
by the people, and the angel foretold it. We know when Mary fell pregnant and the angel appears to Joseph, he says, you will call the baby Jesus, which means God saves. That's a loose translation. God saves. Savior God. He said, but they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Don't you love that they're both true? God saves. How? By coming to us. He saves by being with us. That's why my Christmas message, if you were here, was called present. Not just in the sense that Jesus was a present, a gift to us, but the present was he became present to us. Fully present, fully engaged, present to us in our suffering and our pain and our need. God saves Jesus by coming to us. Emmanuel. If you take your notes this morning, one thing I'd love you to write down about this way of Jesus is that Jesus came not only to tell us the way, although that would have been helpful, and he came not only to tell us the way or even just to show us the way, which is better than just telling us. No, Jesus just didn't come to tell us the way or even to show us the way. He came to be the way for us, to be the way. And you know, when Jesus becomes the way of our lives, then the way we live and the way we think, the way we feel, the way we choose, the way we act, they all begin to change. You know, my story of following Jesus, you know, I, I, I went to Christian schools, but it really wasn't until the age of 16 that I had my own encounter with Jesus, and I chose to make him Lord and Savior of my life. And the change was, frankly, dramatic in some ways. I really became passionate about Jesus. I became passionate about the house of God and the things of God. And my, my parents, who really hadn't begun relationships with Jesus for themselves at that time, that would happen 10 years later, my parents got very worried. Now, I grew up in Australia, and so as a good part of the Commonwealth, we had the, you know, back in the days before Wikipedia, we had printed encyclopedias. And so they went to the bookshelf and consulted the Encyclopedia Britannica, Looking in vain for the name of the church that I joined, convinced I joined a cult. <laughs> Such was the change in my life, right? It wouldn't be until sometime later that they would experience that transformation for themselves. But you know, within weeks of joining this church and finding this faith and this newfound zeal for life and purpose that was suddenly alive in me, I, I signed up for what I kind of thought was like a new Christian's class which turned out to be Bible college. I was 16, still in high school. I was doing seminary a night a week, and the first class I did was called Old Testament Survey, which, trust me, if it sounds interesting, it's, that's an exaggeration. It was tough. Before I know it, I'm 16, and I'm deep in the weeds, line by line of Leviticus, thinking, what have I done? But in a way, relishing every moment of it. By the way, the Bible college was called in those days Power Ministry School, PMS. I, I, yeah, that's right. You heard it here first. I have a certificate in PMS. Uh, I later changed its name to Hillsong College, which was a good decision. But, you know, people didn't have to tell me, shape up. you got to change. I didn't have a bunch of people around me coaching me on how to be a Christian. Do this, don't do that, change this, change your ways. It's not to say I didn't have mentors or friends, but I'm telling you, the change was really natural. It was organic, if you like. It came from the inside out. Things just started to shift in me. And things that were okay a minute ago didn't feel okay anymore. Suddenly, it just didn't, I, 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 something swearing, for instance. It's like, you know, I still know how to say it, but it doesn't feel right anymore. And nobody had to tell me, don't do that around here. Something changed in my heart, like a sense of purpose. Other things, don't get me wrong, it's not like I became some overnight saint. 
right? Other things took years to change, and frankly, anyone else would echo major work in progress? Anyone still working on all kinds of things? Like the instantaneous thing we call salvation and the lifelong thing we call sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ, it's a journey. But I tell you, once I got on the way of following Jesus, it didn't have to come from the outside in because it was changing me from the inside out. And frankly, it was a little bit like sort of taking a walk and one of your legs just sort of starting to go in a slightly new direction, which you can get away with for a few paces, but especially with these tight jeans on, not very long. And my flexibility, that's the real problem here. I had to make a choice. You know, there was something shifting in me, and at some point I had to decide, am I going to try and still live my old life and follow this new life, live my old way and yet follow the way in Jesus, or would I truly give myself to following Him? You can understand the choice that I made, and here I am today. What's interesting is being a follower of Jesus wasn't always called being a Christian. Actually, that phrase didn't even come into being until sometime after Christ had ascended to heaven. The followers in the beginning, the people who followed Jesus and his way, were simply called followers of the way in the beginning. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9 gives an example. This is This is Saul, who after this radical conversion would become known as Paul and go on to write two-thirds of the New Testament. It says in Acts 9 verse 1, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He was persecuting the church. He went to the high priest, asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if if he found any there who belonged to the way, there it is, whether man or woman, he would take them as prisoners to Jerusalem as he Near Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light flashed from heaven around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What does it mean to follow the way? What does it it mean to really follow Jesus? We use that phrase a lot as a church. What does it mean to follow Jesus? I think one way of understanding it it is it means to live his way and to live with him as our way. To live his way and with him as our way. So how did Christ live? How did he live? If he's a demonstration, if he is not only the way, but the demonstration, the literal embodiment of the way, how did he live? Well, for starters, he was a humble servant leader. He went around forgiving others. He was healing the sick, and he loved the hurting, and he he helped the downtrodden and the forgotten. Amen? That's, That's what Jesus' ministry was. This is part of the way it is to follow him. He also taught us all sorts of things. He he taught us by his example how to pray, for instance, like we looked at recently in the Lord's Prayer, how to pray. He, he, He taught us to receive communion in remembrance of him. You know, the the bread and the and the juice or the wine, amen. Remember reminding us of his body and his blood that was shed for us. Jesus loved the house of God. He taught us by his example. In fact, even at the age of 12, when his parents lost him one time, that's terrifying to lose God. That's a big responsibility to raise God. Anyway, they lost him. Where do they find him? In the house of God. In fact, his response to them when they said, like, you're gonna, basically, to paraphrase, you're going to give us a cardiac. They said, well, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? So Jesus loved the house of God. He loved the people of God. He loved the things of God. But you know, one interesting thing in Jesus' example, and this is what I want to focus on for the balance of my time today, is is part of the way, and what Jesus modeled to us, is that Jesus was baptized. 
fact, we're going to take a look at his baptism a little later in the message. But if you think about it, it's a little interesting to me that Jesus was baptized. And what I love about baptism and why I think it's so important to talk about is because in some ways, that one faithful act of being baptized sums up what it means to follow Jesus. Of course, there's more to following Jesus, more to following the way than just being baptized. I understand that. But I believe that baptism is a picture of what it means to follow Jesus. When we pass from death into life, when we leave the old behind and become a new creation, when we symbolize not only his death, but also his resurrection, we join with him in that powerful revelation. My hope, by the way, is that as a result of this message today, if you haven't been water baptized as a believer, as an adult, maybe since you made that decision, if you have, to follow Jesus for yourself, my prayer is that one practical outcome of today is that you would register before this day is done to be baptized in the coming weeks. There's a great book written by a, an author by the name of Watchman Nee, and he wrote a book called Christ, the Sum of All Spiritual Things. And it was translated into English. It's a great read. And I love, he wrote this little passage about the way, the truth, and the life that I want to read. He said, the word of Jesus is, I am the way. This may also mean, I'll say this way also means the method. Of what he here tries to convey to us is that he is the way by which we come to God, as well as the method by which we reach to God. Having him, we have the way. And possessing him, we possess the method. He alone is the way, the method. The way is not outside of him, for he himself is the way. If all we get is merely a method, we will soon discover its ineffectiveness. God has not given us a method. He's given us his own son. So here's my thought this morning. In this day where we so easily reach for methodologies, we reach for things. In a day where self-help is like, seems like the biggest genre of books there is around, we look for a method, a way. What we have to recognize is that, that it is Jesus himself that is our way and Jesus himself that is our method. It's a very different thing to truly accept and embrace Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life than it is to try and simply live like Christians do. To imitate a set of behaviors, to try and be a good person, quote unquote, to get into a bunch of do this, don't do that, and imagine that's the same thing as embracing Jesus as the way. It's sort of a paradox in a way, but you know what's interesting is that doing the right things doesn't lead you to Jesus and to God. But if you follow Jesus, and in turn, you know, Jesus brings us to the Father, then you're going to do the right things. Following Jesus will lead you to do the right things, but we can't do our way to Him. Does that make sense? This whole thing is about a transformation, not from the outside in, but a transformation from the inside out. It's a heart change above all to follow Jesus. It's a relationship. Now, the early church were persecuted terribly for their faith, martyred and persecuted, driven out of their homes, their land, their inheritance. But what's interesting is the more they were persecuted, the more the church grew. The more they were persecuted, the bold they became. The more they were persecuted, the more the gospel spread. In retrospect, as you look back on the first three or four centuries of church history, ironically, 
kind of in some ways, when you look at it, one of the worst things that happened to the church was actually when Christianity became the state religion. Paradoxically, you would think the best thing to happen would be the end of persecution. In 313 AD, Emperor Constantine over the Roman Empire issued the Edict of Milan, which basically decriminalized being a Christian, it legalized it. So it was no longer kosher to persecute Christians. Now, that would have been good news, I guess, if you were a Christian in those days. We're not going to be persecuted anymore. But what transpired, and fairly quickly in a generation, was that his son issued the uh, Edict of Thessalonica in 380 AD, which made Christianity the official religion of Rome. And that set off persecuting all other faiths. Now, isn't this an interesting thing? Of course, it's great to not be persecuted, but you know, the state can't mandate following Jesus. (laughs) And that's where, for some, this whole thing started to go wrong, because you can't mandate following Jesus. The state can't. It's a decision of the heart. It's a decision to lay down your own life. No one can do that for you. To lay down your own life to the sovereignty and salvation of Christ. And now, suddenly, a great danger presented itself, because everyone could imagine that they were a follower of Jesus just by virtue of Roman citizenship. That's a dangerous place for us to be. It's hardly surprising, by the way, that in no time at all, the church and following Jesus became all about beautiful buildings, power, prestige, politics, and all of these things. There's great danger, even for us here today, though we live in a different time, there's great danger in being labeled a Christian if, just by virtue of the label, that causes you to not even consider if you are, in fact, following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. By the way, it's sort of a side note, but related to baptism, That's one of the reasons, theologically, why we as a church don't practice infant baptism. See, we believe that baptism is an outward sign of an inward faith. We believe we baptize someone on their own confession of faith. In fact, when you're in the waters, we ask you, is Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior? And you respond, yes. And we say, on your confession of faith, we baptize you now in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we we dedicate children. We do it all the time bring them up here with their parents. That's a decision the parents can make. Let's bring them for prayer. Let's dedicate them. Let's pray, not only for their protection and for the health and well-being of the family, but one day they would make their own decision to follow Jesus and on that confession of faith be baptized. You know, having said that, one of my favorite ministry moments in all of my years of following Jesus, I think we got a photo of it, was when we had the opportunity to baptize my eldest, Zeke, just, you know, (laughs) in the waters of baptism, standing with him as his parent. He'd made his own decision to follow Jesus. He had his own personal faith. I asked him that question, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? And he said yes. And on his confession of faith, we baptized him. And what a powerful thing it was to pass from death into life like that. One of my favorite moments ever. Second thing I want to spend a moment on this morning is, is that it's important for us to understand how significant it was that Jesus himself was baptized. Jesus was baptized, and there's, a, there's several gospel accounts of it. We're going to look at the, at the gospel of uh, Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, it says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Just pause for a second. Uh, in my footnotes, of my Bible, it explains the word repent. In Aramaic, which is the language John spoke, in Aramaic repent, the word we call repent means to return to God and leave your sins behind. Isn't that powerful? So what John's saying is return to God and leave your sins behind for the kingdom of heaven 
has come near. This is he of whom it was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. He had quite the fashion sense, I guess. His food was locusts and wild honey, and people went out for, to him from Jerusalem and Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Listen, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Then if we skip to verse 13, it says, Jesus came to him from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love with him I am well pleased. You know, it's little wonder that John balks at, he hesitates at the opportunity to baptize Jesus. You know, Jesus and John are cousins, but John knows who Jesus really is. I mean, they're cousins, but he has recognized, no, this is the Messiah. In fact, in a different gospel account by a different writer, the same event, John, as, he, as Jesus approaches, John actually says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So little wonder by the time Jesus comes in front of him and Jesus says, baptize me, John's thinking, whoa, this feels a little backwards. You should baptize me. I shouldn't baptize you. So what's going on here? It's curious to me. Why does God in the flesh want to be baptized? Because just think about for a minute, it's clearly not the same reason as everybody else. The passage we just read said that, that people, John said, repent, turn from your own ways, the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, Jesus is the kingdom. So, okay, what's happening here? He doesn't have anything to repent of. It says, confessing their sins, John baptized them. He has no sins to confess. Why is Jesus being baptized? It's curious to me. Well, I think there's two things going on. One of them, maybe the more obvious thing, is that what Jesus is showing us, he's showing us the way. He's doing this as an example for you and I, that we also, in turn, if we're going to follow the way of Jesus, we should do the things that he did. And so he, he does this as an example of the way. But there's something richer, something deeper that I really love about this. And it comes back to what John said in the other gospel. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You see, Jesus came not only as a Savior. How did he save the world? He came as a sacrifice. He came as the Lamb of God. What does it mean, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world? Now, he came as the sacrifice that died for my sin and for yours. You know, a sacrifice always had to be prepared before it was offered. In fact, the Passion, a new modern translation, the Passion translation of that same verse, where it says it's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness, it adds this footnote. It says, as in, to complete every righteous requirement. This was the presentation of the Lamb of God as the sacrifice for all sins. It was important that John publicly washed the Lamb of God and fulfilled the requirement of the law, proving to Israel that the Lamb that was soon to be offered was spotless and without blemish. Now, think about it one step further. It's not only Jesus who was to be offered 
as a sacrifice. Of course, he was the perfect sacrifice. He was our high priest. He was the Lamb of God, the Son of God and man of God. He died in our place. But now, as followers of the way, you and I are called in our following of him to offer our own lives as a sacrifice too. We follow his example, in other words, even in the waters of baptism. Not by literally dying, although certainly still to this day, many do literally die for their faith as martyrs. But, but more commonly, by dying to our own way of living. Let me give you a couple of scriptures in a row here to show this to you. Romans 12, 1 to 3 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, listen, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. What is He calling us to do? Paul, writing to the church of Rome, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see, what's popular these days, and many people have seen it, imagine that following Jesus is just like adding Jesus to your life. You know, as if we were eating a, a meal of food, and we're like, you know, it needs a little seasoning. You know, Jesus is like a little salt in the meal. Like, I've got my thing going on here, God, but you know, I'm so magnanimous, I'm so generous, I'll include a little of you in my life. That's not how it works, right? To follow Jesus, we don't add Jesus to our life. No, we give him our life, and we become a living sacrifice. I'll show you another example. Luke 9, verse 23, it says, He, Jesus, said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. What's it mean to follow me, follow Jesus? Deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow him. Well, we know, of course, that he's not calling us to literally die on the cross. It's not a literal cross or we couldn't do it daily, right? So that makes sense. But what are we, what are we called to do? Well, we're called to live, but we're called to live for him. Amen? Romans 6, 3 to 7 says, don't you know all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Amen. For we know that our old life was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So we follow Jesus in his powerful example. His death and his resurrection symbolized in that beautiful moment of baptism. His example, and we live then as living sacrifices. So here's another important thing I think to take from today, and I believe this with all my heart. Every disciple of Jesus should be baptized. Every disciple, every disciple of Jesus should be baptized. One of Jesus' most famous statements is oftentimes today referred to as the Great Commission. People quote it, people know it, but you know what's interesting is oftentimes we miss right in the middle of all of that is baptism. There's other parts of the verse that we quote more readily, but right in the heart of it is baptism. It's in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. It says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Did you notice there that Jesus connects baptism as the natural result of discipleship? It's like all in the one sentence. I'll go again, verse 19, it says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. We often stop there. Make disciples of all nations, comma, baptizing them. This is like one movement. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. Well, I think sometimes we do a better job of our discipling and our teaching than we do of our baptizing, amen? But in Jesus' view, as he taught it to us, it was inseparable from discipleship that we would pass through the waters of baptism. Max Licato, a famous Christian author I like very much, he just made this statement. He said, baptism separates the tire kickers from the car buyers. <laughs> and why is that? It's because there's a sense of commitment. There's a sense of no turning back that comes when we get baptized. That's why I believe these moments are uh, so integrally linked together. They're inseparable. In fact, I have a, a friend, Pastor Rod Plummer, who leads a church based out of Tokyo called Lifehouse. And these days, I think they're in 15 or 16 cities, not only around Tokyo, but mainland China, all over Asia. They've got these churches. And Pastor Rod was talking to me one time about reaching the Japanese people. And his experience uh, in the cities of Japan was that oftentimes the Japanese people would very readily lift their hands and receive Jesus, but more in the vein of what I mentioned earlier, adding Jesus to their life. But something about their culture He said it was very difficult to get a Japanese person to choose to be water baptized. But if you did, they never turned back. See, there was something in them that recognized what I wish we would all recognize, which is that these two things go together and that baptism is supposed to represent this point of no return. Jesus or nothing. Amen. There are many examples in the scripture, especially in you know, the book of Acts. I mean, it's instantaneous. People receive Christ and were baptized. They receive Christ, and it's like literally, like they prayed the prayer, and then they're looking around. Where is the nearest body of water? Let's do this. One of my favorite examples is in Acts, of all places, Acts 16. It takes place in a prison. Paul and Silas have been jailed, and they're, but they're in the prison, and they're praising, and they're worshiping all night long. And they're praying, and God delivers them miraculously, sends angels, break the chains, the doors of the prison fly open. And so we pick it up in Acts 16, 27, that the jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. That would be his fate. If on his watch the prisoners had had escaped, that was his life. So he goes to kill himself rather than face torture. And it says, but Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Pause. It only occurred to me this week. I'm like, that's odd. I'm just like putting myself in the story. I'm in prison wrongfully. This is, you know, I've got wounds later in the story. It's clear I was wounded in the process. I'm praying. I'm worshiping. Suddenly my chains fall off. All the doors fly open. Now, firstly, why are they still there? But secondly, like when the jailer's like, he's going to do himself in, they say, stop. We're here. Doesn't that seem a little counterintuitive? If you wanted to make a prison break, doesn't that seem like the opposite of what you would do? But that's what you do when you're full of faith, amen? They see a miracle in the making. This is so beautiful. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's amazing. 
What's he just seen? You know, sometimes we got words, words, words. There's nothing like the power of God. Amen. He witnesses a miracle, an undeniable demonstration of the power of God. And his first response is, what must I do to be saved? And what happens? It says, they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And it says, oh, no, they said they replied to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke to the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, and immediately, do you see that? He receives Jesus. He's received the word, and immediately he and all his household were baptized. When the jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them, he was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole household. What an amazing thing. Out of the most unlikely of circumstances, maybe you find yourself in a difficult season right now, in the midnight hour, in prison, so to speak, worshiping with the chains on, so to speak. And who, you know, how do we not know that, that in some moment of God's power, He would deliver you, and not only for your own sake, but even for the jailer and his household, someone who, frankly, naturally speaking, represented the very oppression that Paul and Silas probably hoped to be free of. God had salvation even, not only for him, but for his whole household. But I love that word, immediately. What must I do to be saved? He receives Jesus, and immediately he was baptized. So my last thought this morning would be, so what about you? What about you today? What about you? You know, before the service is done, one of the team's going to give instructions on how you could register to be water baptized in the coming weeks in your community. We'll give instructions on how you could sign up for that. If you've never, since you made that decision to follow Jesus for yourself, if you've never been water baptized, I tell you, it is such a powerful declaration of faith. It's a powerful thing to invite family and friends to come witness that point of your life. It's a powerful thing. You know, as one or two of the worship team come join me, I, I, I want to say this. We're water baptized. I'm going to give you a couple of quick thoughts as we close. We're water baptized for one thing because we follow the way of Jesus. That's one reason to be baptized. Secondly, we, we're baptized not only because we follow the way of Jesus, but because we're obedient to God's word and to God's command. Thirdly, we're baptized because we're offering our lives as a sacrifice to God. Fourthly, we're baptized because we're dying to our own way of living and coming alive to the way of Christ. And fifth and finally, we're baptized because we mark our decision to follow Jesus by honoring his death and resurrection that purchased our own. Such a powerful thing. Such a powerful thing. No turning back. So get ready to pray. I want to ask you a question this morning. Christ is the way. But my question is, is he your way? I believe with all my heart, Christ is the way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way, but is he, is he your way? We often talk about follow Jesus, thrive in community, make a difference. But the truth is the foundation of all of that, to truly thrive and to truly make a difference in life. It all begins with the choice to follow Jesus, to follow the way, to surrender our own way of living, and to follow Christ. Romans 5 verse 8 puts it this way. It says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us.